Welcome to Health and Her, the podcast that's all about women's wellness trends and unfiltered talks. I'm Dr. Ashley Barker. And I'm Dr. Laura Pfeiffer. As your hosts, you can expect a perfect blend of expertise and humor, obviously, hoping to make complex health topics easy to understand. Hello, everybody. We are back. Thank you for joining us. Um, we're going to start today. If you guys, if you're, if you're listening via audio, you probably can't see if you're looking visually, um, at our podcast, you still probably also can't see because my visual quality kind of sucks, <laughs> but I'm having, which is like status quo. Um, yeah. I'm having a hell of a Monday and, uh, mm. I've been battling this, uh, mystery eye problem. I'm having like a, like a reaction of the skin, the lower eyelid here. I'm super itchy. Um, naturally Dr. Laura and I have been talking about it all this morning and she has <laughs> recommended some hemorrhoid cream. And you know what? I haven't even asked her why yet, but we'll, we'll circle back to that. But I have not slapped the hemorrhoid cream on my eye yet. How I thought you were going to do it right away. away. No, I've been, I've been at the clinic. I, I wasn't able to pop out between patients and get hemorrhoid cream on my eye, nor, you know, would I be able to explain that so easily? <laughs> well, thankfully you can just buy it. You don't have to explain it to anybody, but <laughs> that's um... true. like, like the cashier is going to question my choices. <laughs> she she won't follow up about the hemorrhoids. I'm sure. She's of like, it. um, tell me more about what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> right. I probably don't owe anybody an explanation, but I felt like you guys should know. Yeah, like I feel I feel like you would be walking around. Guys, I I don't have hemorrhoids. It's just yeah. my under eye. Just my I've eye. Got, it's just my eye. Got some puffiness. But you know what? Like no shade if you do have hemorrhoids because uh, they are you know what painful. I was just thinking? I was just like, going to I was debating. I'm like, do I disclose this to people? Do I not? I have never had a hemorrhoid. Cool. So, you know Lucky um, you. Uh they don't look fun. I don't wish it well, I mean I do kind of wish it on some people, <laughs> but I don't I don't wish it on <laughs> You know what? I hope I was I was making my bed yesterday. Um, we got home from being away. We were at a wedding. We got home and we were making the bed. And because uh, I just had cleaned my sheets, we we're like putting the duvet on. And duvets are annoying. Okay, so I got this one. I can. I can. Yeah. Agree. So the one I have, it, it doesn't have like in my next purchase, which this one was expensive. So that's annoying. But in my next purchase, I am buying one that has um, ties at the corner so that I can like tie my duvet in, but my duvet itself doesn't have ties. So the duvet cover has ties, but there's nothing to tie it to. So essentially I'm just like shoving it in the corners and this is, this is related. I brought it up for a reason. Um, And so yesterday, so the bottom of my duvet cover is really pretty. It's got like buttons. So you like, instead of being a zipper, it's like pain in the behind buttons. You feel like right. do a beach button, but it's cute when it's all like said and done. And mm. yesterday, one of the buttons was undone and the, the duvet was coming out. And I was like, Ooh, we got to fix that. It looks like a hemorrhoid. <laughs> so anyways, um, moving on today, we're chatting about a health topic. The health topic is timeline for getting pregnant how soon is too soon? Now, there was something that sparked kind of this conversation for Dr. Ashley and I. um, And so we'll talk about a lot of those things. But first, before we get into it, I found this article 
that was actually posted the end of December, and it's called Sniffing Women's Tears Reduces Aggressive Behavior in Men, Researchers Report. So What an article. Like, so here's, let's just get the, the lowdown. So male aggression in rodents is known to be blocked when they smell female tears. So determine to, to determine whether tears have the same effect in people, the researchers exposed a group of men to either women's emotional tears or saline when they played a two-person game. The game was designed to elicit aggressive behavior against the other player whom the men were led to believe was cheating. When given the opportunity, the men could get revenge on the other player by causing them to lose money. The men did not know what they were sniffing and could not distinguish between the tears or the saline, which were both odorless. Revenge-seeking aggressive behavior during the game dropped more than 40% after the men sniffed women's emotional tears. And in an MRI, the functional imaging showed two aggression-related brain regions that became more active when the men were provoked, but did not become as active in the same situation when the men were sniffing the tears. What happened? next four like where are people coming up with these games or like crazy eights like what a friday night first of all like my question is always you know in order to do this research we have to have a purpose and like usually the researchers have to line out what they're looking for like what were they looking to achieve that's in- that's an interesting point too um wow and like yeah. there's yeah there's a lot to unpack here besides the the actual article too and that like i like no, like, no, we're not going to be these, like, crying, subservient humans to elicit empathy and kinder responses in males, like, pass. But, um, wow, there's a, there's a lot in this. Yeah, we are interesting. I don't even really know, like, what my thoughts are about it. It just, it was interesting. And I think it's a, a, a cool thing. I think there's a reason why, you know, um, men are more likely to have regressive responses. It's probably a lot more evolutionary in mm. nature um, than females. Um, but anyways, I just thought I'd bring it up. I thought it was funny. So um, moving forward. Hi guys, Dr. Ashley here. I just wanted to pop on here and let you guys know that I'm starting my next round of my level one and level two postnatal exercise and education series. Whether you are just looking to gently connect with your core and pelvic floor after baby and start some strength training, or you have some big goals of returning to high-impact sports like running, CrossFit, or other sports, I have a series designed for exactly that. So if you're ready to start exercising after baby, head to the link in my Instagram bio to register. Uh, I actually like this health topic about how soon is too soon. And it's interesting because um, Dr. Ashley and I both have kind of like skin in the game in terms of from a pelvic floor perspective, like everything else. And I actually, you'd be shocked. I've actually spoken to quite a few patients who are trying to get pregnant, but are still breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. So this is something I get asked all the time. Like we're going to try for another baby, but I'm still breastfeeding. Like how do I go about this? And it, it's just interesting because not a lot of people know that, like, really, when you are breastfeeding, you're essentially suppressing ovulation. Uh, and, and again, it's not consistent. It is not a form of birth control. It's not the same in every person. And so it makes it really difficult. Uh, if you are trying to get pregnant, it's not a great thing 
to, to be breastfeeding. It, is, right. it truly isn't because we can't, you know, really measure things in the same way. Like the prolactin does stop your ovulation essentially, but there are people who get pregnant at three months, you know, postpartum when they're breastfeeding because they just happen to ovulate. It's really not like a, uh, a no fail method. So right. I just find it interesting. Lots, not many people know that about. Um, yeah. About and we should circle back because um, one of Dr. Laura and I's uh, pastime at this point, it seems to be is we both kind of peruse. We have a lot of local mom uh, group <laughs> forums, if you will. Yeah. And the stuff that's posted on there is like outrageous. And And how this came up was there was a mom that posted um, something along the lines of, you know, she's, what was it, three or four months postpartum with twins. Am I crazy for getting pregnant again? And I was like, yes. <laughs> what? Like, are you out of your mind? Yeah. And it was funny because, again, the responses in these groups, if you've ever been a part of them, are um, hilarious in terms of the spectrums in which everybody's coming from, right? Because there's always... <laughs> There's always like the different responses, you know, you get these like kind of, um, you know, these people that are coming on with a little bit of, I think, uh, information kind of being like, well, no, this isn't a good idea. And this is why, um, maybe with some sort of healthcare background or perhaps, you know, read into it a little bit. And then there's always the like, I had babies four seconds apart and they're all yeah. fine. Yeah. I made it through. You will too. And, uh, that's kind of a survivor bias. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, so that's what kind of sparked the interest too, because, you know, both Dr. Laura and I were like, no, pump the brakes, pump the brakes for so many different reasons. Uh, and that's actually, I think what we're going to explore a little bit today. Yeah. And I think, again, all joking aside, it is, uh, it's wild. What was it? Twins? Did you say in the, yeah, I think it was twins. It was like three or four months postpartum with twins. Yeah. And and I think there's a few things to unpack here. I think the biggest thing and the first thing I want to like the elephant in the room is that fertility challenge challenges can really complicate this conversation. So it's not really a matter of, you know, when the optimal birth time is. It's like, can we get pregnant? Like, let's try ASAP. And I can understand a lot of the reasons for uh, people who have just given birth saying like, let's try as soon as we can, because for it sure. took us potentially three years beforehand. So maybe they're not expecting to get pregnant right away, but at least start trying so that they're not essentially wasting time. Like yeah. I can understand that, that piece of that conversation for sure. I think it really also depends on specifically if we're talking about the person who just gave birth to twins, I can only as assume that they had a C-section because that's usually the standard protocol in that, um, in that type of pregnancy. Mm. And so if they've had a C-section, there's going to be a different timeline at play than, uh, if they've had a Correct. really healthy vaginal birth. Yeah. I think we have to look at the contextual factors. Like you said, there's, and, and, you know, I have a lot of, you know, there's, there's clinician, clinician Ashley, and then like, you know, Ashley as a human and Ashley as a human is, um, is a 34 year old single mom that always ideally wanted to have more than one child. Right. And, you know, these conversations are important and, and maybe we'll circle back to this, but oftentimes, you know, speaking from a North American perspective, when we are at our best fertility wise is not always when we're at our best life wise, relationship wise, yeah. financial wise to have a baby. Right. And it sort of brings us to this 
you know, um, this fork in the road uh, in terms of decision making that way. But yeah, the birth method and the birth circumstance is also very important, right? So what your body goes through to carry um, a set of twins or multiples to term safely is very different than a singleton birth. And same thing as Dr. Laura touched on, um, birth method matters, right? We're talking about in, and now I think we, I don't know if we're making assumptions, but let's, let's go with the likely it being a, a cesarean birth, meaning, you know, this woman had to have seven layers of her abdominal wall cut open in order to safely deliver that baby. So that is a very different recovery process. Mm -hmm. Um, than somebody that had one child, half the weight that was maybe born vaginally, right? So, so these things really do matter. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think I was just looking and, and I already touched on the idea that breastfeeding essentially is going to stop your ovulation. But I also, when I was looking into the research, wanted to confirm for people because sometimes uh, patients will ask me, well, can I, like, what's the harm in trying? Is it harmful if I got pregnant Ooh, question. while yeah. I was breastfeeding? And so um, this study is looking at uh, fetal maternal outcomes of breastfeeding during pregnancy. And it's a systematic re review and meta-analysis from 2021. Essentially, um, they're saying uh, the present study shows that Breastfeeding during pregnancy did not lead to adverse outcomes in the mother and her fetus. They did show that breastfeeding during pregnancy does not lead to adverse outcomes in a normal low-risk pregnancy, although it may lead to the nutritional burden on the mother. And so right. just understanding, you know, that scenario, speaking with your healthcare provider, making sure that you're getting, okay, so, you know, I'm breastfeeding. I, I intend to get pregnant. Like, what's the next move here? You know, how are we supporting our body? Are we upping? Are we upping our supplements? Are we adding additional iron? Are we looking at our diet in general? Like, what are we doing to support those systems? So, I tell patients, you know, part, you know, prong one of this conversation is you might not even be ovulating. So we need to figure that out first. And if you want to understand that, you can refer to our previous episode where we talk about that in LH strips and that sort of thing. Um, and, and if you're not ovulating, we might need to have a different conversation. Having said that, if you got pregnant while you were breastfeeding, it doesn't show that it's, you know, necessarily harmful. So that is a, is a positive thing. The other thing I wanted to look at was postpartum interval time and, uh, sorry, postpartum interval and time to pregnancy. And I found a 2021 article and essentially it's saying, and I thought this was interesting is that among North American pregnancy planners, long postpartum intervals, so more than 48 months, was associated with slightly reduced fecundability, and short postpartum intervals, less than 12 months, was weakly associated with reduced fecundability in some subgroups, including women with a history of C-section delivery um, and planned pregnancies. So again, potentially there's a sweet spot, right? Because 48 mm -hmm. months shows slightly reduced. And again, we have to look at the actual study because this study is looking at eligible women 21 to 45. That's a large range. Right. So let's just say like, you know, I'm just, <laughs> oh my God, this is so stupid. 48 months is how many <laughs> 48 months is four years, correct? <laughs> oh my God, you're gonna make me do math on a podcast? <laughs> I was like, I was kind of wondering, I was like, what is she laughing at? No, literally, I'm laughing at the idea that I wanted to get out a calculator. That's so embarrassing. <laughs> but here's, 
what I was trying to, the, the point I was trying to come to is if you are, we know that fertility reduces after the age of 35, essentially, right? And so let's just say you were the person and you get pregnant, you have your first baby, let's say 34, right? Now you're 35 and hold on. <laughs> yes, four. I was right, okay? The the lesson here is don't doubt yourself. <laughs> right. That's the lesson here. <laughs> okay. So let's let's just go back to the point. You're 34, right? You have your first baby. If you waited less than 12 months, maybe that's not ideal. If you waited longer than four years, your fertility is already going to be decreased. Right. So I don't know if we take it pregnant this year, it sounds like. This is what <laughs> this is the other this is the other lesson here. This is the other factor. Again, this is I'm just looking at how they did it. So women completed a baseline questionnaire, looked at information on demographics, lifestyle factors, reproductive history, including a detailed information on all previous pregnancies. They completed a bi-monthly follow-up questionnaire for 12 months to update it their status over time. Again, I feel like they shouldn't have looked at an age range that goes so high like right. you know, the the fertility of someone who's 45 versus somebody who's 21. Um, yep. is, is vastly different. So again, take with a little grain of salt, potentially. Yep. Um, the other thing I like to, to uh, this is going to be more for Dr. Ashley, but what about the actual, so vaginal versus C-section? What about the healing time? Like we talk about this six weeks of healing and like, what does it actually look like and what should it be? Right. Six weeks. Yeah. That's such an interesting conversation. And again, it goes back to it being so multifactorial and I'll, I'll throw myself in here in the mix to kind of give some examples. Right. So <clears throat> depending on, you know, uh, the, the overall pregnancy and the birth circumstances and, um, the trauma that came from the actual birth itself as an event, very, very different. Like six weeks is not really six weeks is a good timeline to make sure that we've ruled out all life and death scenarios, right? It becomes mm -hmm. far less likely um, several weeks postpartum that anybody's going to hemorrhage. In all likelihood, we've picked up any signs and symptoms of an infection. In terms of matching it up with, <clears throat> excuse me, tissue healing though, not amazing. So, you know, um, again, a lot of the literature will say that um, a woman's body is restored kind of to that pre-pregnancy level in an, not until about the six month mark. Um, and that's if everything was pretty smooth sailing, right? Yeah. Um, more and more research is coming out, which I think is great in terms of the, the C-section population and um, the functional ability for certain muscle groups to generate um, the amount of force needed to perform specific tasks in a sports setting. And what we're actually finding <clears throat> is that those functional healing timelines of those muscles being able to generate adequate tension um, is actually quite a bit longer, like looking at that 12 to 18 month marks. And, and that kind of makes sense. You know, if we look at uh, tissue healing, muscle healing, at that six week mark, um, what the body is really good at is really quick repairs that can handle sort of the day-to-day -day stuff so when you you probably don't do this but if you were to look at under a microscope what the beginning stages of like a scab or like a muscle tear kind of look like in those beginning stages of feeling we have this really like hap 
haphazard meshwork of different types of fibers. So yep. our muscles are not just one type of fiber. We have a various mix of collagen and elastin fibers. And in those initial phases of healing, it looks very like chaotic versus if you look at a mature, healthy muscle, you'll see this kind of pattern of these like striations of everything looks kind of linear in the direction in which the muscle runs, right? It has a, a far more organized pattern. And what we're finding is that, you know, at that six week mark, it's basically like a band-aid. It's like the body is like, mm -hmm. we need to create some stability for right this second, but it's not optimal for loading, right? And right. <clears throat> so it's very, um, it's like a very preliminary situation at that six week mark. Um, so really that's not, that's really not a good timeline to use for things like, uh, returning to the gym or exercise that six week mark is sort of like a bare minimum for a lot of situations. Yeah. And that actually goes in line with, um, you had said six months and I actually pulled up a study. Uh, it's, I was actually published December, 2023, uh, and it's birth spacing and risk of adverse pregnancy and birth outcomes, a systematic review and dose response meta-analysis. And it looked at a systematic review of, of observational studies to evaluate the association between birth spacing and adverse outcomes. So they looked at a total of 129 studies and there were 46 million pregnancies included. So lots of um, data to pull from. And what they found was in general, um, sorry, in the general population compared with an interpregnancy interval. So just to come back to what an interpregnancy interval is, it's the period between the live birth or like if it was a loss or a miscarriage um, and the conception of a pregnancy. So that's the interpregnancy interval. I feel like this is a little bit controversial because I know in primary care, I and again, I don't know if they're differentiating because it's saying or, right? It could be a loss or a, a birth. And typically, like in, in any of my patients who are in the primary care setting or the fertility setting, um, they are uh, typically recommending their patients get pregnant right away after after a loss. So again, I feel like I need to pick apart this study a little bit more to see if they differentiated it in any way, shape, or form. Um, I just got a message on Seesaw that uh, Leo cut himself with scissors at school. <laughs> oh, this is real life. Okay. Anyways, um, he's okay. Good. So. I'm glad to hear that. Good. Uh, anyways, the paper it's like we have to open Seesaw at, at all points uh, in the absolutely. day. Absolutely. That's so. usually where I find out that my kid is um, licking puddles or, um, white or students or another child. Yeah. Those are. <laughs> okay. Coming back. Um, it, it saying that in the general population compared with an interpregnancy of 18 to 23 months, which I think they're saying as ideal. So they're saying 18 to 23 months between giving birth and getting pregnant. Right. Um, they're saying extreme intervals. So extreme being less than six months and over 60 months were associated with an increased risk of adverse outcomes, including preterm birth, small for gestational age, low birth weight, fetal death, birth defects, early neonatal 
uh, death and premature rupture of fetal membranes. So um, for pregnancies following preterm birth, so again, I think it also depends. Oh, moreover, an, an inter-outcome uh, interval of over 60 months was actually associated with an increased risk of C-section, which is interesting. That's very interesting and not what I and, would have predicted. No. And for pregnancies following preterm birth, so if you had a preterm birth and then you got pregnant after, an interpregnancy interval of nine months was not associated with an increased risk. So that's interesting. Um, specifically, if you, you know, let's say you were trying to go off evidence and you were saying, you know, I want to get pregnant again. I had a preterm birth. What is the ideal time frame? According to this study, the risk reduces if your interval is about nine months. It was not associated with an increased risk for your second pregnancy. Again, there are so many factors. And then also, and, and also, again, coming back to the fertility conversation. Yeah, the ideal is nine months, but like, what if you can't get pregnant, right? Like, that's a whole other ball game. So this is just looking at, you know, past observational research. We always talk when we're talking about pregnancy we never intervene with certain things like that would be unethical. So it's, it's mainly going to be observational. We're going to look at like, what, who are you and what did you do and what does it look like now? And we're going to take that information. Yes, exactly. Um, so their conclusion on this was that extreme birth spacing has extensive adverse effects on maternal and infant health in the general population. Interpregnancy interval of 18 to 23 months may be associated with potential benefits for both mothers and infants. And for women with previous preterm birth, the optimal birth spacing may be nine months. Now, again, this information is not to make anybody feel any type of way because there's so many circumstances where it's like, well, yeah, nine months, nice, but like I couldn't get pregnant for four years. Totally get it. We're just looking at the research and seeing, you know, is there risk to starting to try to get pregnant earlier? And what does that risk look like? And how do we, you know, navigate? Similarly, if we know that breastfeeding during pregnancy and you know you're breastfeeding and you're trying to get pregnant, it potentially would be a good idea to make sure nutrient status was assessed. Maybe, you know, you're maybe you're due for blood work. Maybe you're like, I'm due for blood work. Might as well get my iron checked, my B12, my vitamin D. So we can make sure that during this time period, I'm being well nourished. Um, because at the end of the day, most times, most times, I'm not going to say all, but most times we're going to end up taking everything from mom and giving it all to baby. Yep. So I always tell my patients like, baby's probably gonna be fine. You're not. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like that baby will leech off of you for survival. Right. Um, and then you will be left with the ramifications of that 100%. Yep. And that's usually what happens. This is what we see in the postpartum, right? Yep. And so uh, I, I don't know about you, but I felt like postpartum, I felt like I was pushed off a cliff, essentially. Like everybody cares about you when you're pregnant. And then, you know, you end up, you give birth and now it's like, see you later. Oh, 100%. I was, I was back at work at 10 weeks in my, in my, pretty much my diaper. And yep. it was just like, oh, like, Ashley is back, you know, professional, like just carry on, right? Like have the same conversations, work the same caseload, do the same things. And uh, yeah, 100%. And yeah. And I posted, sorry, go ahead. 
I said I just wasn't ready for any of those things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I posted something on Instagram today about, you know, postpartum iron deficiency is a big deal. Yeah. And this is something we have to look at as well. If you're looking to, um, I just think in general, I think in the general population, we really discount the importance of having iron. Like, I think there's so many people, so many women in the general population that have iron deficiency that we're all like, yeah, it's normal. I'm just always anemic. The amount of patients that I see that come to my office or I speak to virtually and they're like, yeah, I'm anemic. And they just, it's just factual. And I'm like, right. what? But like, what's you being done about it? Right. Like there, there should be no reason why you can never get your iron levels up. And specifically if we're talking postpartum and wanting to get pregnant again, you better believe iron plays a role in your ability to get pregnant and have a healthy, you know, pregnancy, especially like when you're going to give birth, it's really important to have hemoglobin levels as a, uh, of a certain level, because we need to make sure that, you know, we, we're not at risk for uh, losing too much blood, needing transfusions, you know, hemorrhaging. Yeah. So totally agree. Uh, that's something to consider as well. Like we need to stop, you know, being okay with the idea that we're just tired moms because yes, in the first, you know, 12 weeks when baby's not sleeping, then yeah, you're a tired mom. But beyond that, you're a tired person that needs an investigation, right? Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. We need to listen to women quite a bit more when they come forward with their with their medical complaints. And I know sometimes it can be challenging to differentiate as well. But like, I don't know about you, but like trusting your gut and trusting your body signals. Like when I am like, you know, if my son's sick or something like that, and I'm, and I'm woken in the middle of the night, there's like a, a fatigue, a tiredness that comes from that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if you ever have been iron deficient or, or depleted in any other way, like it's just, um, it's like a really, I, I find it to be a very different feeling, right? It's like all of your systems are tired, not just like I lack sleep, you yeah. know? And, um, and unfortunately, you know, a lot of times when you go to your primary care provider, it's kind of all lumped into one category, like tired new mom, diagnosis, slap it on, that's that. Yeah. Yeah, we need to be having better conversations. We need to be having more thorough conversations. We need to be advocating for ourselves. Um, this is why I like to, you know, educate in this arena in terms of, um, as you do, in terms of like, you know, understanding exercise and how to get back to it and understanding blood work and testing postpartum and understanding the appropriate interval between, you know, trying to conceive again, if, you know, if conceiving without issues was kind of your history, then you're like, I'm ready to go again. We need to make sure that we're addressing that as well. Yeah, 100%. All right. Well, that wraps it up for this episode. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you guys soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to the show. We hope you enjoyed it. And as always, please leave us a five-star review and don't forget to share with a friend. We'll see you next time.